Hey builders, welcome to another episode of the People of Growth podcast. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you to check out our Patreon to see how you can unlock some pretty awesome benefits, like asking your own questions in our interviews. The link, as always, is in the show notes. Our guest today is Dr. Denver Fowler, the curator of the Badlands Dinosaur Museum. In this interview, we talked about Denver's diverse paleontology experience from digging up dinosaur fossils to working as an associate producer on a TV series called Prehistoric Park. But I don't want to spoil too much, so let's just jump right in. Hey, Dr. Fowler, how are you doing? I'm uh, doing pretty good. Had a, had a nice day cleaning up some bones. All right, that's what I like to hear. What are you working on right now? I cleaned up a Tyrannosaur premaxilla today and also some pieces of a Centrosaurus frill. So premaxilla, is that part of the jaw? Ah, yeah. The premaxilla is the tip of the snout on the upper jaw. So in a Tyrannosaur, it has four teeth in each premaxilla, making it eight on each side. This is from my new Tyrannosaur that's quite large. It's quite large for a Displodosaurus. Very cool. So for our listeners, if you can't tell already, Dr. Fowler is a paleontologist. Why don't we let you introduce yourself? Kind of tell us who you are and what you do. Oh, well, my name is Dr. Denver Fowler, and uh, I'm the curator at Badlands Dinosaur Museum, which is in Dickinson, North Dakota. As curator of a relatively small museum, I kind of do a lot of typical sort of paleontology jobs. So I do research as a typical curator might. I do a lot of collections management where we store the fossils in our collection spaces. I design exhibits. I'm currently redesigning our whole exhibit, basically, because it's quite old. And I'd sometimes do a bit of preparation of fossils. And I do an awful lot of field work in the summer collecting new fossils, both for display, but also for our research. Very nice. What would you say is your favorite part of your job, of all those different responsibilities you listed? Field work is is a favorite part in terms of, I suppose, regular day-to-day stuff. I do really enjoy research. Not all research necessarily. Um, I really enjoy when you, when you find out something that's really kind of new and weird, not sort of describing things, but some new concept or something. That, that really gives me a kick. Very cool. So let's rewind a little bit. And can you take us back to when you were younger and you first got into paleontology? How did you decide that that's the path that you wanted to go down? I always liked animals. So when I was a little kid, uh, we always had lots of pets. And uh, my dad dug me a pond when I was young. So I used to sit there studying the frogs and the newts and things. I grew up in England, if my accent doesn't give that away. And so I always had this interest in animals. And we went down to the south coast of England on holiday. And I, I'm from the north of England. And I found an ammonite fossil on the beach when I was about five or something. It took me ages to drag it back to where my parents were. But from that point onwards, we used to go fossil hunting quite a lot. And that's great fun for kids. So I always liked fossils. Now, we only ever used to really find invertebrates. We found a few scraps of bone, but, but not much in the way of vertebrate fossils. So I was always interested in animals and I was always liked to, to collect fossils. And so through school, I, I was kind of interested in doing something with animals. I was always interested in science. Mm-hmm. And when I got around to going to university, I took a geology degree at the University of Durham in the UK. And then shortly after that, I did a master's degree at the University of Bristol. And then I eventually ended up doing my PhD under Jack Horner at the Museum of the Rockies in Bozeman, Montana. In between all of this time, there was quite a few years between my master's and me finishing my PhD, I've done quite a few other things. I've 
I've run an awful lot of fossil trips, things like that, but I also worked in television for Impossible Pictures, so the same same company, the same people who did um, Walking with Dinosaurs and things for the BBC. Can you tell me a little bit about what you did while you were working on that project? We made a show called Prehistoric Park. I was principally the specialist researcher for Prehistoric Park. I did a bunch of work on other productions too, including uh, Walking with Monsters. I made the trees green. They were brown when I went there, but they don't have brown bark in the Carboniferous. They have green bark, but they don't have bark. Anyway, I was mainly working on prehistoric parks, so I did more of an associate producer's role. I wrote a lot of the content. A lot is probably not the right way to put it, but I, I wrote uh, sort of a lot of the intro stuff. I wrote a number of scenes. I supervised the sculpting of the models of the animals, which, as it happens, is actually something directly portable to a curator's job, like all these reconstructions that we have done, both in terms of 2D art and 3D sculptures. It's exactly the same as what we did in television. Except in television, they were for computer graphics, you know, moving around. So I worked a lot with the artists. And just making sure that the scientific content of each episode was as accurate as, as, as reasonable for that kind of show. So I did a lot. I was there for 11 months and then another month, I think the next year, just finishing things up. That's quite a long time for a research position in television. Usually it's more like just a few months. Mm-hmm. So I'm not familiar with the show. Was it mostly a, a scientific type of show or more entertainment or somewhere in between? Oh, well, Prehistoric Park was commissioned by ITV in the UK and it went worldwide. It was, um, I can't remember who it was, Fremantle or someone now, but uh, it was it was supposed to be competing for the same kind of audience as Doctor Who because Doctor Who had just restarted up. This was back in 2005. Oh, okay. Doing very well. So Prehistoric Park was commissioned at the same time as, it was called Cutter in production. I can't remember the name of it now, but it's the one where they go, they have all sorts of animals escaping all over the UK. Uh, Prehistoric Park was docudrama. The premise was Nigel Marvin gets sent back in time to save animals for his uh, wildlife park. So he basically, it's just a, a mechanism by which you can send him back in time and he can say, oh, look, there's a T-Rex doing this. And he went to the Carboniferous and stuff like that. So it was aimed at sort of family level viewing. And there was scientific content. You know, all the animals were scientifically accurate, or at least they were for the time. And uh, some of the behaviors they showed, that kind of thing, was based on scientific papers. So it was delivered at a, at a friendly family level. And there were some funny things happening with some of the animals, that kind of thing, to be entertaining. But people seemed to like it. It did pretty well. So I got one series. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was expensive television. It was like, a million pounds an hour, something like that, which is quite a lot for a wow. Yeah, I'm sure with all that computer-generated graphics, it uh, wouldn't be cheap. Yeah, yeah, those are the days when it was very expensive. I mean, Walking with Dinosaurs was the most... Exp- I think Walking with Beast actually was the most expensive per-minute documentary at the time. But CG these days is super cheap. I mean, everyone can do it, you know? Mm-hmm. So speaking of dinosaurs within television or pop culture... What do you think of fictional books and movies such as like Jurassic Park, for example, or kind of the reboot of Jurassic World, or even as far as The Land Before Time for children? What do you think of these kind of portrayals of dinosaurs in pop culture? I think anything that really gets science message out there is good. Generally speaking, I think all these sorts of shows and movies and things are good. Anything that gets dinosaurs or fossils in general or paleontology or just the age of the earth, that, all those concepts, if anything that gets that into the public consciousness is a positive thing. 
Sometimes you do wish that there was a little bit more accuracy, or perhaps a better way to put it is avoidance of inaccuracy. Sometimes there's just lazy research, lazy production, lazy animation, which can make you kind of cringe a bit. Because sometimes, you know, the, the truth is more exciting than the stuff they make up. I'd like to think that we actually avoided that for the most part in the shows that we made. But sometimes the movies don't care so much about accuracy. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be boring. You know, it's just like, once you start making it up, well, why stop? You know, T-Rex was 800 feet long and could jump a mile high and just make it up. Why not? Yeah. You've got to draw the line somewhere. And it's, it's always best if you draw the line at what's, what's fact, what's, what's at least suspected. You know? Right. Instead of venom squirting dinosaurs, Dilophosaurus, I think, in Jurassic Park. Yeah, I mean, uh, that sort of thing. I'm not, I don't, I mean, my, my wife really likes Jurassic Park. I think I was a little bit old for it. But I think at the time, like, the idea of venom and dinosaurs wasn't quite as uh, untrue. People hadn't really thought about it all that much. So it was a kind of fun mm. thing to have in a movie. It's not too big of a deal, that. I mean, that one's kind of like a character piece. It's more of the modern velociraptors not having feathers just seems a bit silly now and stuff like that. Yeah, but at the time that Michael Crichton wrote the book, I don't know that the scientific community was all on board with the feather thing yet, were they? No, and and, and that's where, you know, historically these things, we build on previous work. Mm-hmm. Almost everything you read is probably wrong in science. <laughs> it's kind of the way I approach research. Is I assume that everything that's been written is probably wrong, because it is. You think back 50 to a a paper from 50 years ago, how much of it is correct? Not all that much when it comes to paleo. Descriptions, you know, a nice picture of a fossil and a good description, those pretty much hold up. But interpretations and uh, family trees and all these kinds of things, how many years do they last? Not that long. It's kind of sobering to think that everything that you've published is probably going to end up being wrong at some point, no matter how hard (laughs) to make it correct. I think it also means that you shouldn't feel bad about when you see a piece of research and you go, well, that can't be right. It's like you shouldn't feel bad about doubting another person's work or thinking that they can be improved because basically that's how science is. I mean, everything gets improved and eventually there's hardly anything left of the original piece. I'd be kind of sad if I thought that some of my papers would be just nothing in about five, 10 years, but that's it. You just got to keep going and producing things and taking everything a step forward. Right. And I think that in the end, you're producing building blocks. You know, we're not just throwing out everything that was older than X amount of years. We're building on the, the information that we have, right? Right. Yeah. We, we, we build on the prior knowledge. So let's talk a little bit about the experiences that you've had. I know that you've done quite a bit of field work. Could you tell us some of your most interesting finds or the most enjoyable experiences for you? When I was out in the field many years ago with Dave Martell from Portsmouth, I said to him, look at all these beautiful fossils. Aren't you like really excited to see those sorts of things? And he's like, yeah, but like once I've written about it, I'm kind of bored of it and I'm moving on to the next thing. And I thought, how can that possibly be the case? These things are beautiful fossils. How could you ever get bored of looking at that? But having written a few papers and having found a bunch of things, I kind of see where he's coming from. I don't get bored of these things, but you know, you work very hard, you find something cool, you're super excited about it, you work very hard to publish it. And then, and then you're kind of like, okay, next thing. So in terms of the exciting things that we found and published on, I found a lot of nice fossils. I haven't necessarily published them all. I mean, I found a beautiful skull of a juvenile triceratops and Juvie Trike 3. It's at the Museum of the Rockies and I have a cast of it, uh, which we're going to put on display soon. That was in 2008. It's 
basically complete other than uh, the backs of the lower jaws. Everything else is there left and right. It's uh, really quite incredible. That was a nice thing to find. I found a dinosaur nesting site in the Hell Creek. That one we're working on at the moment. That's pretty exciting because anyone who knows the Hell Creek knows that you never find dinosaur nests really in the Hell Creek. They tend to be more inland, so this is something quite unusual. That's a bit of a teaser. I'm not going to say anything more about that. We'll have to wait for you to publish something, huh? Yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of my uh, spurring myself to actually properly write things, these things up. But that was that was a, that was a cool thing to find. That one for me is was was especially exciting because you start off as a bunch of bones and you find bones all the time, you know. And then you start piecing together the clues, and all of a sudden you're like, "Wow, this is something really special," and it shows a behaviour, which is which is more interesting than just the shape of a bone. Mm-hmm. I worked a lot in. I mean, my, the first collecting that I used to do was in England. I used to collect on the Isle of Wight and the early Cretaceous beds there. I found a really nice bone one night. I was super excited about it. And uh, I brought it into the museum I worked in. I was like, what's this thing? I, it's a vertebra of some kind. It was, it was only quite small. It was about this size. But it was an axis vertebra from a sauropod. And at the time, there weren't many known. And there was only like two or three known from Europe. And uh, I still have to describe that. It just goes to show how far behind I'm falling since I found it 20 years ago. But that was one of the first things I found that was actually... So when you're a collector, like you find lots of fossils and, and at some point you find something that's unique and that's important and that should be in a museum. And that's the point mm-hmm. at which you kind of make a decision. Like, are you going to go down the commercial route and sell all the stuff you find? Or are you going to go down the academic route and put it in a museum and have it described? So that's what I did. And it's got um, museum numbers. Actually, it hasn't got museum numbers, that one, but it is going to be uh, it's going to have museum numbers once I get around to uh, finishing off the description of it. But I have a bunch of other things that I found down there that are in the museum locally. Okay, so you talked about like when you find this fossil, are you going to go down the commercial route or are you going to bring it to a museum? What are your options there? If you find something on public land, is it something that you can keep yourself or do you need to... What, what kind of channels do you need to go through? Ah, fair enough. So uh, the situation in Britain is rather different from the situation in the U.S. In the U.S., uh, my museum works on public land. And on public land, everything belongs to the people of the United States. So we don't own the fossils at our museum. We look after them for the people of the United States. So everything we collect in the U.S. is publicly owned. So it sits in our collections drawers. But if we close down those fossils go to another government repository, museum. Right, okay. We were only approved as a government repository in October of 2018, um, but we worked hard to upgrade our facility and get all the security and climate control and all that kind of thing in place because it allows us to go out and collect under permit. We have to apply for a permit every year and write a report every year on what we find. So I actually quite like writing my reports because I don't have to write them in like, really cold scientific language like a paper um, i can write them and be a little bit more loose with some of the language and it, it's quicker to write and it's more fun and i'm not going to get scrutinized by peer reviewers it's like i can just write it casual so i quite i quite like writing my reports but they are very long because we find lots of stuff so i suppose that's not bad mm-hmm. so, but that's what it's like in in the, in the u.s in the uk it's a little bit different that most of what you're collecting is is on coastal areas and if it's below the high tide mark, it, it technically belongs to the crown, 
so it belongs so you, basically people can keep the fossils which is kind of a problem long term because i mean britain has fantastic dinosaurs i'll say this straight up like the the isle of wight the lower cretaceous beds there are as rich as anywhere i've ever been they're as rich as the best parts of the morrison there's loads of bone however there's only about i think five miles of cliff exposure and that's it so it's incredibly rich for those five miles but there's not very much exposure so you don't really get that much material relative to say the morrison formation but there are fabulous things coming out but i think i feel like there needs to be a more coordinated collection of them in the uk i, I think that's a if there was a little bit more big scale digging going on like we do out in the West in the United States, you'd see all sorts of fabulous things coming out. You just got to mm-hmm. get in there with a shovel, you know, and uh, take a lot of plaster and glue. Okay. So if you're going to look for specific fossils, how do you determine where you're going to find those? I imagine you don't just walk out into the wilderness and start digging somewhere. There's got to be some kind of rhyme or reason to that, right? Yeah. So, I mean, most every piece of rock in the U.S. has been mapped already. So we're very fortunate we can look at geology maps. So um, I want to work in either the Hell Creek or the Judith River Formation for the most part. So at the moment we're working in the Judith River. So uh, that's about 77 million years old, and it's exposed across Montana. So I will look at a geology map, and I'll look at the light green, I think it is, Judith River and see where in the state the rock is exposed on the surface. And then I tend to go to look at land ownership. So I see where the rock is exposed and see where there's public land. And then I'll look on something like Google Earth to see if there's any actual rock outcrop. Because anyone who's been to Montana will know that uh, it doesn't matter what the topography looks like, it's usually covered in grass. Even if it looks nice and rough and rugged on the topo map, it might still all be grass. So. Things like Google Earth or aerial photographs are really helpful. And so then once I've decided, okay, that's the small area of public land I want to go to, there's a nice outcrop on it, I write a permit application off to the BLM and there may be somebody already working there, that sort of thing, but the BLM coordinate and if everything's done correctly, they send me my permit. And then we go off and we prospect. My prospecting crew is typically... I'm prospecting, I might have two people with me, and we basically hike around the Badlands. And we look at every single piece of rock. Uh, we don't just home in on the best stuff. We do eventually get an eye for what looks promising and what doesn't, but we tend to be pretty thorough in terms of looking at everything because there are good layers and there are mediocre layers, but you can find, like our experience in, in the Judith River and the Hell Creek, you can find dinosaur bones or interesting bottles in every layer. So... We've got a number of ways we increase our efficiency, but we just hike around over the rocky outcrop and look for look for little scrap coming out or little tiny microfossils, pretty much anything. Okay. So along the same lines, I have a question from one of our patrons, Scott. He's a lineman, so in his career he's done a lot of digging for um, poles and power lines, and he was wondering if you are just a an inexperienced person digging about how do you know if you've come across something significant or if it's just somebody's dog has buried this bone in the backyard that's a very good question because 
there is quite a lot of fossilized bone on the surface in these areas. I suppose this works at two different levels. So there's how do, how do we know when we're out there whether what we see is worth collecting or whether it's scientifically important. And then we get a lot of material brought into the museum. Well, not a lot, but people do bring in bones every now and then. And they usually buy some bones or uh, pig bones or whatever it is that they found wherever they were. At the level of people coming into the museum, usually bison bones are not especially important because they're usually quite recent. Of course, bison, we don't see them around right now, but as little as 100 years ago, they were all over the place in this part of the world, in this part of North Dakota. Mm -hmm. So finding bison bones is not too unusual. But if people have found them deep enough in the rock, then they might be something like bison antiquus. They might be one of the older species. So we keep an eye on, on what people are finding. Um, um, but wh when it comes to identifying things when we're out in the field, well, that's why you, you, you need to be qualified to get a permit from the BLM because you need to know what it is that you're finding. Mm -hmm. and we, we collect everything. We collect small, tiny microfossils. We collect clamshells. We collect giant, complete dinosaurs. And very often I hook up the right researcher with a specimen we found if I think it's something that they might be able to do some research on. So you've got to kind of know who's working on what and what's interesting and what isn't. I, I often ask researchers who are out with us, and it's like, well, what's interesting to you? What do you want? It's like ankle bones, like jaw bones. I mean, I know mammal teeth are interesting to them, but uh, what else, you know? So we get a good idea of the sort of things they want. So being informed is that one, is one thing. Another thing is you found a scrap of bone. How do you identify it? It's a completely different skill from going into a museum collection and seeing a beautifully prepared femur with all the processes. You can see it's a femur straight away, you know? There it is. It even says femur on the label. You don't have to dry very hard. Uh -huh. But it's got all the processes, like, oh, the fourth trochanter is doing this. When you're in the field and all you've got is one smashed up chunk and a cross-section in the cliff, can you tell what it is? Well, after a while, you, you start being able to. And can you tell the difference between a Montosaurus femur and a T-Rex femur? They're very similar sizes. And if you've just got a cross-section, you have to look at all kinds of things, internal texture, external texture, the density of the bone, the way that it breaks, all these little clues. And it comes with experience, but there's, there's certain tricks you can use. Now, I look for symmetry. I have a sort of five-part plan that I teach to my people and my field crew. I always say, shape is your enemy. Don't ever try and identify something by shape. Anyone who tells you the use, to use shape in the field, nah, I don't know what they're doing. You use texture, <laughs> okay. texture, cross-section, symmetry. Symmetry is kind of related to shape, but it's not like the number of people who will pick up a lump because it's kind of pointed is like, well, it's still rough. You know, it's kind of weird. I'm always amazed by some of the best people I know uh, in England at finding things. They can, they can tell there's a piece of rock with bone in it just because the rock is the wrong shape or the wrong color. It's like it's unusual for an area. It breaks differently if there's bone in it than if there isn't. And you, you get that almost, that's not a sixth sense, but you get that sense after a while. If you spent a long time in a formation, you just learn how the rock should look if there's no fossils in them. And so if you see anything at all that doesn't look normal, you're like, hmm, I wonder what that is. You pick it up and it might just be a funny leaf or a, or I don't know, an unusual mineral, but anything that doesn't look normal, your brain just sort of picks it out, your eyes notice it. 
Mm-hmm. So that comes with that experience. So it sounds like there's a lot of picking through maybe insignificant things or you know finding things that you think it might be a fossil, but it's really not. It is just a rock or a leaf or something. Does that ever get mundane to you or is it always exciting looking for those fossils? Fieldwork is always exciting apart from when it's 100 degrees plus, 100 Fahrenheit. Which is how often where you're working? Because you're in... You're working in uh, eastern Montana, is that right? Yeah, it was pretty warm for two weeks at the end of this last season. I got pretty taxing. I mean, the thing is, when you find something exciting, then all of a sudden everything's great. It doesn't matter what temperature it is, as long as you've got rain. But uh, if you're trudging around hot, bare, poor shale, and uh, it's in the raw sun, it can wear you out a bit. People say, like, you, like you, when you're the first person, you're the first human ever to see something, and that never gets old. It's like well, I suppose so, but you don't know you're the first human. You're just the first human to bother picking it up. It's, yeah. <laughs> there's hunters all over <laughs> this place, you know, in the fall. They see everything. Uh-huh. Now, we actually talked earlier. You mentioned a story about a hunter who stumbled upon a plesiosaur. Yeah, it was a really, really cool um, email that, that we got forwarded when I was at Museum of the Rockies. Um, obviously, people hike around and you see things. And there's this photograph attached to this email. And there's just this guy with a great big bow. And he's sitting next to this little stream. And over the top of this stream is almost this perfect little fairy bridge. Except it's a bridge made of articulated vertebrae of a plesiosaur. And, you know, there it is right away. It's uh, as obvious <laughs> as you like. And he was dead pleased. And uh, we sent out a field crew to collect it. And it turned out to be a really nice plesiosaur. So... Occasionally, members of the public do find things, and um, it's it's great because it, it's it's not as much work, especially when it's something obvious, like uh, something that's obviously important, like that. Sometimes it's quite easy to find scraps of bone, and if anyone does find a scrap of bone, you want to send us information about it. Take photographs. Always take photographs. There's nothing more frustrating than someone describing a bone on the phone. Oh, it's about eight inches long and it's brown. <laughs> it's a uh, bone colored. Yeah, got the shape of. Uh bone it's uh, it's <laughs> yeah. surprisingly difficult to it's like well you just described a bone but it doesn't mean that's what it is i mean photographs are always the best thing right i think it'd be pretty hard to to mistake an articulated vertebrae right right if you were out hiking about that i mean i would consider that a, a successful hunt for sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah he, he was pretty pleased and hunters of course are quite are more familiar than most people with anatomy as they often cut the animals and up and things like that. And farmers, like we get a lot of people finding stuff on their farmland. They're pretty familiar with what bones and bone shapes are, especially of uh, living animals. Uh-huh. I'm quite pleased actually that we've not, um, in Museum of the Rockies, people used to bring in a lot of dinosaur eggs, uh, which were just river rocks. I haven't had many people like that in North Dakota. Most people who bring stuff into my museum it's usually a bison bone or something like that. It's usually something that's actually a fossil, you know. Uh-huh. So I'm always kind of pleased with that. And now I've said that, I'm probably going to get people coming in, bringing all sorts of lumps of sandstone and their human heads and things. You'd be surprised some of the things that you can see in a rock. Oh, yeah. When I was in probably second grade, I would have sworn to you that I dug up a full-on tyrannosaur skull. And here I am digging it about. Recess is over, go back inside. The next day, come out, can't find it. It's a total conspiracy, right? Someone else has dug up my fossil and taken the credit for it. So obviously, you know, an eight-year-old kid has an imagination, but 
I think adults too, like we come across something and we think, oh man, like this is significant. This is important. And like you said, it's just a, a nice round rock or something like that. But you never do know when you're going to stumble upon something significant. Right. And it's, and you sort of, you it's when your brain is looking for regular shapes or unusual patterns. And sometimes people see something, well, they can't, that can't be natural. It looks too, the angles are just right for a head. Uh-huh. And as long as you're seeing things that are unusual, you know, the first few, you're not going to find fossils. But as long as you keep picking these things up and looking, you know, eventually they, you will see, find something of interest. Your brain just gets used to these search patterns. I remember, I remember when, I was, when I was in Oxford once in England, we were walking along the towpath of the canal. And I wasn't trying to find anything at all. I was talking. And uh, all of a sudden, my brain notices this, uh, this belemnite just there in the gravel in the towpath. And you realize that you never switch off. You're always, you're always looking, looking for these patterns and shapes in the rocks. Mm-hmm. So you've got several open sites right now, right? Yes. Well, I mean, we finished our field work for the season, but we have a few sites that we work this season and we've got some sites that we work continuously. The area where we've worked the last few years, we've, we've had a few tyrannosaurs come out. So we have one that we're airlifting very shortly which is in the world's hardest concretion, world's heaviest, hardest concretion. It's a great fun. But that's a complete skeleton. And we have another site that we've been working this year, which has got some nice skull bones. Posted photographs of some of those on uh, Twitter and Facebook and places. We didn't know how it was going to come out. We, we found a nice little premax uh, a few years ago, a couple of years ago. It has an enormous amount of overburn. We had to dig off 20 feet worth of uh, rock to get down to the bone layer. But we didn't know how it was going to turn out, but we found some more skull bones, so we were very pleased. There's not too much of the skeleton there, it would seem. A head, a few vertebrae, but you find the head, you don't complain, right? So uh, it's, it's looking pretty promising. So that's a quite large Despletosaurus. And these are all in the Judith River Formation. And then we have a bone bed of hadrosaurs that we're working called the Bighorn Bone Bed. I call it the Bighorn Bone Bed because we found it in 2017, I think. There's a nice microsite above it. Jack, my field assistant, is, is looking at the microsite, and I find this beautiful ceratopsid horn. I was dead excited. It was about eight to ten inches long. I thought, yes, there's bone coming out all the way along. I thought we found a ceratopsid bone bed. Brilliant. I called it the big horn bone bed. We go there to dig. Every single bone is a hadrosaur bone. <laughs> Apart from that one first brow horn, which is beautiful. I mean, there must be the rest of at least a ceratopsid skull in there i'll be fine with that we can have 10 duck bills and one ceratopsid i'll, I'll take that but just there was so much bone i thought finally we've got a really awesome site and uh, it is an awesome site if you like duck bills but my wife does so she gets to run that site but that one's quite oh, a fabulous good. site it's uh it's probably got at least five or six individuals right now but i bet there's dozens of dead duck bills of sort of half grown to full grown with some nice skull material it's tricky to get out. It's in a kind of slightly hard siltstone, but when you know how to deal with it, it's, it's pretty good. So you've uncovered quite a few ceratopsids. I suppose so, yeah. I mean, ever, yeah. I've worked in New Mexico, collecting down there with Dr. Robert Sullivan from the State Museum of Pennsylvania. He's retired now, and now he lives in New Mexico. But we collected a lot of pentaceratops and its relatives. I've collected triceratops in Hell Creek and uh, leptoceratops and some Centrosaurus and things in the Judith River. And I guess I've collected quite a few Ceratopsians. Sounds like it. What would you say is your favorite dinosaur? 
I always say baryonyx because I used to find quite a few of its teeth in England and they're just, they're just pretty. I really like teeth. So baryonyx is a basal spinosaur, sort of ancestor of Spinosaurus, a British, a British dinosaur, and it has fabulous weird teeth. They're really quite special. What makes them weird? Um, they have very, very small serrations. They're quite stout, a bit like a crocodile. They have little flute marks, these little ridges and, and scooped areas on the sides of the teeth, usually on one side, but sometimes on both and sometimes on neither. They're quite variable. They're very pretty. They have granular enamel. The enamel is quite pitted and rough, especially if you look in a microscope. All sorts of weird things, weird things about them. They're quite, un, I mean, Tyrannosaur teeth are quite stout, but every other, every other theropod tooth you ever saw looks more or less the same. That's a terrible generalization, but, uh, you know, Allosaur <laughs> teeth are pretty similar, Neovenator teeth, Neovenator Carcharodontosaur teeth are slightly wider, but they look pretty much the same. When you get the really small theropods, the Ricardo Astesias and the little raptors and things, they start to get very variable. But middle to large size theropods, their, their teeth look quite similar, which is why Baryonyx was just so special. That's my favorite dinosaur. Awesome. So if any of our listeners are interested in paleontology, what advice would you give them as far as how they can get started down that path? Well, in paleo, there's not many jobs in paleontology. My thought is that there are still jobs, however, and the best people or the people who work the hardest, you, know, you have a chance. If you work really hard, you have a chance of getting one of those jobs. There are some growing fields at the moment. For example, we know a number of people who did paleontology degrees uh, in schools I've been at, and they are doing paleo monitoring. So especially in North Dakota, there's quite a lot of paleo monitoring. This is where people who are digging a road or digging a pipeline, for example, you check to make sure they're not uh, destroying any fossils as they're digging. Mm -hmm. And they do come across things. Um, I know a few people who, who there's a whole whale or something that was collected in California that was part of one of those projects. Wow. So paleo jobs like that are kind of emergent. But if you want to get into paleo, doing science subjects is useful, of course. Biology and chemistry and even physics to an extent. It's one of the things about paleontology is it's very applied science. So you do need to know geology and you need to know biology. So you need to know the animals and the rocks that they came from. To an extent but there's lots of different aspects of paleontological research these days you know there's people who with engineering degrees who are treating dinosaurs or fossils of all kinds uh, like their buildings or bridges and doing biomechanical studies and they might do a 3d scan of a bone and that's as close they ever get to a real fossil and everything else is done using computers uh -huh. so mathematics there's a lot of mathematics in paleontology these days so really, if you have an interest in paleontology and you have a skill or a, or a, um, a particular kinds of science subject that you uh, want to pursue, then there's usually a niche somewhere in paleo where you can use your skills. And I think that's one of the big growth areas in research is really people from outside of paleontology, outside of a traditional geology degree like I did, people from outside of that group coming in and using different techniques and different skills to find out new things. Are there many volunteer opportunities within paleo? Yep. So we do take volunteers. COVID's a bit of a drag right now. Yeah. So that sounds a bit blasé. I apologize for that. I would love to have had a whole bunch of volunteers in our lab right now. 
and if it wasn't for COVID, we would have a lab available for, we can fit like four or five people in at a given time. So we take volunteers all through the year in the lab. And then in the summer, we, our crew is typically about 10 people. I aimed at 10 people for this year. And when COVID came along, I just stopped looking for new people. So we went down to sort of five to 10 at any given point in time. But that's mostly volunteers, myself and my wife, and then a bunch of volunteers from all walks of life. At the Museum of the Rockies, we used to get mostly students because we were attached to a university. But at Dickinson Museum Centre, where I am now, actually, most of my crew are a little older than that. We have people who are retired. We have people who have finished college and they're sort of looking for their next job, that kind of thing. And many of those people come out for the whole summer. You know, they can be out for two months or more, mm-hmm. which is great for us because we get that consistency and we can train people as long as they can cope with our rustic camping conditions we don't stay anywhere fancy we stay in a field everything everything's in that field we have a generator now so we have a little bit of electricity hey fancy yeah now that sounds like a lot of fun it it is we we enjoy it we have a lot of overburden to do next year at our tyrannosaur site again but uh we put the tunes on the on the uh on the radio and uh just just get digging i think anyone who enjoys camping really it's camping plus dinosaurs i mean what isn't there to love yeah, I mean, that sounds ideal. All right, folks, if you're interested in digging up a tyrannosaur next summer, <laughs> give Denver a shout. And in fact, if people do want to get in touch with you or find you, support you, follow you online, what are some ways that they can do that? I'm on typical social media places. So on Twitter, I think I'm DF9465. Now that's easy to remember. And then there's the Dickinson Museum Center Twitter, which is at D underscore museum underscore center um, dickinson museum center is a good place to look on facebook there's also fowler paleo on facebook i'm not one of those people that likes to post something every week i always feel that it feels routine then but if i post something it's because like we've got a cool fossil that's just been prepped so i might post two or three things in a week or i might only post it once every three weeks but i like to make sure it's of a certain quality you know, there's something mm-hmm. worth seeing but there's those our website is a good place to go to get in touch or find those sorts of contact details um, or addresses, that kind of thing. So that's just DickinsonMuseumCenter.com and you'll see the paleo pages within that. We don't update that all that often, but it's a good place to get all the basic information. Facebook's the best place to see all the latest news. Perfect. I will link to all of those in the show notes. And listeners, he really does put up some great stuff on Twitter. It's not going to be blowing up your feed with useless stuff. All of the pictures are really entertaining for me. I've really enjoyed seeing some of the fossils that you've been pulling up. So definitely go check that out. Well, Denver, thank you so much for being on the show. I've really appreciated you coming on and I've really learned a lot. I know our listeners are going to enjoy this as well. So once again, thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been fun. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. It really was a pleasure to interview Denver about what it's like to be a real paleontologist, which as we all know, is an amazing job. Go give Denver and the Badland Dinosaur Museums a follow on Facebook, Twitter, all the links in the show notes. And for goodness sake, if you're anywhere near Dickinson, North Dakota, go check out the museum in person. You won't regret it. As always, keep building. Keep building.